I'm grateful that you are here. Uh, the question was asked to me as I was kind of walking in a few moments earlier to make sure the handouts were out there. Um, so is this it? And the answer is kind of. Um, uh, for those of you that have been around a long time, um, I think Paul Weiss, maybe a few of you have actually been here uh, longer. And so I don't know exactly the genesis of uh, how what used to be called Encounter that now we're calling Wednesday Night Study, where it really came from. Um, but we're going to be kind of wrapping up tonight and uh, kind of uh, doing some, a little bit of time thinking about how we study the Bible a little bit to kind of drive some of those points home and then going back and, and looking at some of the key ideas, some of the key themes uh, that we noticed in this book uh, to hopefully underline them in our lives. Um, uh, and then I'd like to, at the very end, to leave it open for any questions that you might have um, at all that came from the pastoral epistles. Usually when I say that in formats like this, I don't get a lot of questions. I really enjoy Q&A. Really, really, really enjoy it. Um, and so you might want to even be thinking at the very beginning uh, if you have any questions on any of the issues that we talked about. And you had some fun ones in this book. The role of elders, uh, the role of women, um, uh, the, the idea about heresy and people who fall away. So you've got a number of different themes that come up in this book. And I think it'd be good for us to, uh, for us to talk about them. But uh, the, the, the real thing I want to make sure that you understand is like why this exists. And the reason why Wednesday night study actually exists is because we believe so much in the word of God and so much the word of God working in us and working through us. Uh, that we want to spend some time talking about that. And so ordinarily, uh, the, the majority of things that we do in this time period or the majority of studies that we do in this time period uh, revolve around looking through a Bible text, verse by verse, literally word by word, Greek word by Greek word sometimes, um, to give you a level of, of study and a level of understanding that hopefully you both enjoy and then begin to apply uh, to your own life. And so I, love, I used to tell our old... Uh, don't tell Julie she's old because she knows she's old, but our old uh, children's pastor, Julie Davis, we used to talk a lot about ministry. She was uh, a school teacher here in town for a number of years, and we used to talk about just, you know, what, what are we trying to do when, we, when we're doing ministry? And it's, it's good to think about this, that, that in the end there's lots of things, and it's easy for us to think about kids like this, but I think it's true for everybody. Um, I used to tell her that one of the paradigms that I have in my mind is that everybody needs to eat a variety of different things. I mean, I love steak, but I actually have learned over time, uh, our, only our son Matthew has never really enjoyed the salad part of the meal, but I've actually learned to enjoy the salad part of the meal. And then you have an appetizer part of the meal, and then you have the meal part of the meal, and I love a dessert part of the meal. And so when you're looking at kind of the overall uh, teaching program or the overall teaching ministry of the church, what we're actually trying to do intentionally is offer different, different levels or different ways um, to, to, to speak God's word and to come together in biblical community and to study it. And so on Sunday morning, I think you could recognize that for me to try to do this on Sunday morning in an hour, here's what it looks like, it probably wouldn't work really, really well, um, which I guess is fine. Because uh, this isn't the only thing that we want to do. But for many of you, and I see so many faces that I've seen from the very beginning, um, this is something that you thoroughly enjoy, that you really want to know more about. And so that's the reason why we do it. 
Um, our Wednesday night programming um, kind of follows the seasonal times of year, and so uh, we kind of hit it hard in the beginning of August, and we go all the way through about Thanksgiving, and then we kind of take a, a break, not from loving and honoring God, but meeting together on Wednesday night to love and honor God. We pick it up again that middle of January, and we kind of work hard all the way through about April, um, but I don't know if you can feel it, but there's this mood in the air that... Um, baseball has come home to roost or that va family vacations is about to happen. And it's just kind of that, that, that whole change of things. And I promise if there is a desire that you have, I, I, I throw this open. I remember a couple of years ago, um, I, I, I said that my wife and I would gladly have all of you in our home and she'll cook for us and we'll just kind of sit around and read the Bible. Um, we're in the process of getting rid of our house. And so it's going to be a little more complicated. So we might have to do it in your house. Um, but uh, we never want to say no to the idea of getting together and study the Bible, and I don't have to be the only one that starts that. So if you have an interest in continuing on through the summer, I'm sure Paul and myself or Ryan and Diane or whoever uh, would love to have conversations about some different ways in which that can happen or maybe even make you aware of different studies that are already taking place, that are already happening. I know of a number of other studies um, that I'm doing throughout the week that actually don't stop during the summertime. I meet with um, some men on Tuesday mornings. I, I meet with some used to be older people, but that now it's kind of a cross-section of people uh, on Wednesday. Wednesday for lunch. So there's a number of different Bible studies that actually exist. Um, would love to, to make you aware of them so that you can grow in your understanding of, of who God is. So let's, let's wrap this up. And uh, basically, what are some of the things that we can take away from this? Um, a number of years ago, I had the, the, the privilege of coming in after, in one of our classes called Church Builders, it's a Church Builders class, um, they're basically this age group that refuses to admit they're getting older, so they're just, they're kind of staying in this, right, because there's an older group, remember that brother, there's an older group, but not the Church Builders, they're that kind of that young group that after 13 years I think you're older, but uh, I, I came in to teach a couple of classes to this particular uh, group of people, and I remember talking to Larry, who is one of their primary teachers, and I asked him, what have you been studying? And he said, we've been studying the book of Philippians. And I remember, this wasn't a, it's not a thought that I'd had all the time. I remember literally having like the genesis of this idea. I remember thinking to myself, like I wonder if I came in, after you guys have spent a lot of time studying Philippians, I wonder if I could tell by you. I thought that was interesting, right? Andrea, I'll travel somewhere and I'll, I, when, I, when I travel, I get to eat some pretty pretty kind of just different tasting food. I remember coming back one time and I remember Andrew just saying to me, wow, you've had garlic. I absolutely love, love, love the, whatever you call it, pico de gallo or the salsa at Mexico Joe's. Like, I love it. Like, it's almost the meal for me. And I could eat chips and chips, and I eat it, and I eat it, and I eat it. Andrea can always, I come home from Mexico Joe's for lunch, and Andrea says to me, you've been to Mexico Joe's, haven't you? I mean, it just comes out of my skin, right? I mean, you just, you can tell you eat certain things and it just comes out. And I wonder sometimes, like, could I look at you or could you look at me? I'm not trying to just point the finger at you. Like, could you look at me and say, you know, I think you've been reading the pastorals. And I, I don't know how often that actually happens. <laughs> and I guess I just have to wonder sometimes, like, why? Why is that? And I think one of my major concerns personally, and I really do hope you share this, 
is that we can get into this habit of studying the Bible and studying the Bible and studying the Bible and studying the Bible. And I'm not saying we don't change. And I get that it's even a slow change. I'm, I'm totally comfortable with the way the Holy Spirit is at work in us. I, I just, I, I long for people to see Christ being formed in me. And the, it's the whole concept of like what you eat is the energy you have to burn to live. And I think that same thing is true spiritually. And that's one of the reasons why I want to strongly encourage you that when you get into any kind of Bible study, and this is just one of the many's that you've probably done, that you're constantly asking, like, how is this book going to shape me? Like, how is this book going to specifically challenge my thinking? Because that's a good thing to do is to challenge your thinking. Where, uh, if I were to even say to you, like, where have you changed your thinking, not, not because Jim taught or Ryan taught or Paul taught, but because the Bible was there. Like where did Paul through First and Second Timothy or Titus like change your whole attitude, your whole belief system out, about something because you, would, you don't have the audacity to stand in front of me and say, no, 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 I understood the, the pastoral epistles perfectly before you started. You wouldn't say that, would you? I wouldn't say that. This book has affected me. This book has changed my thinking on a number. I could give you a number of examples. I can give you another key words. I remember studying and saying, wow, this really is going to shape hopefully how I'm an elder. Well, that was one of the big things that hit me this semester was hopefully I'll be an elder. And you can hold me to this, an elder that is more patient with people that are um, persistently difficult to lead. I really took that away from this book. Um, and, the, and the truth is, honestly, it's been a joy to lead here. It's not like I could even think of a whole bunch of names that make it miserable. I can't even think that, but Paul is calling for that. So when you look at this book, I mean, were you ever spending some time asking, okay, how is this book going to change the way that I think? But we're not just thinking beings. So the mind is part of it, but you know, where has this book then maybe began to stir your emotions? This book is a very passionate book. A very passionate book where the Apostle Paul is pleading and agonizing over things. He is deeply worried about the churches in Crete and Ephesus. So he's very intentional and sometimes we can read the book and in this comfortable environment, I meet with some college students on Wednesday morning and they were just kind of asking this question like when, when did we, and they're talking about culture, when did we in society have this idea or that idea? And I just, I stopped them and I said, just, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. I want you to just think back 200 years. And I want you to think how many people had the luxury of going, oh, I have to wake up and go sit at Panera Bread and talk about theology for two hours. I mean, do you, do you realize, have you ever stopped to just think, you know what they were doing 200 years ago? like trying to figure out where they were going to get their food for the rest of the day. Many, many, many people were. And so a lot of what we have is an incredible privilege. And so we often talk about the privilege of this nation and the freedom that we have. And I'm, and I'm, I'm for all of that. I'm recognizing and being grateful for all of that. And then I began to ask the question, how about the freedom that you have time-wise? I know you're the busiest person in the world. I have heard, right? I've heard. You're the busiest person in the world, and no one is as busy as you. I get it. Um, we are still collectively not near as busy as a number of different people where we have the luxury of doing this. And so I, when I think about that, and I think about the opportunities that we have, it's like, let's make the most of these things. 
let's take them with a, a certain intense degree of, uh, of intense degree of intentionality. So the first thing I want to spend just a few moments talking about, just a few moments talking about, is this: how we should study the Bible. And I, I just want to remind you of two things. I think there's two ways in which I want to strongly encourage you to study the Bible. And, and, and the first one is this. I, I want to strongly encourage you to study the Bible um, in a kind of in a slowed down, kind of in a format like this, slowed down word by word, verse by verse, going back and looking at the different, the different words and how they fit together, having a commentary beside you or having some other biblical resource and we can help you get those. But literally saying, I'm not just going to have someone speak at me. I'm not going to have someone just talk to me. I'm not just going to, and by the way, this is just one of many. I'm, not, I'm giving you two things, but one of many um, ways of doing this, but literally slowing down and saying, I'm going to try to figure this out for myself. One of the best ways to learn and to grow confidence in the scriptures is to spend time in them. And I remember years now, years and years and years and years ago, watching people study the scriptures and then teach those scriptures to me. And I remember just thinking, how do you do that? And they would say to me, well, you study it and then you share it. That's how you do it. I think you're a wizard because I don't know how you do all that, right? It just, it seems amazing. And then I finally decided I want to be able to do that. And I began to pursue doing that. And so I had to do it. And I, I'm telling you, I promise, I got nothing. I'm, I'm not very, not overly intelligent, okay? I'm educated, but I'm not overly intelligent. I'm, I, I am ab- in love with God's word, so that's one thing that really, really helps with this process. But I really want to encourage you that in your time, um, and I would say this both privately and corporately, to involve yourself in a study of the Bible that actually does like slow down and reads it. In, in, in one of the studies that I do, um, right now we're in the book of Romans, and it's hard for us to get anywhere because I'm, I'm reading it rather slowly. And the more that I look at it, Paul's got all of these phrases. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets and in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. <laughs> right? I mean, that's Romans 1, 1, 2, and 3. And when I begin it, you break that down. There's a lot there. But how many of you, when you read it, Paul, Paul uh, you know, uh, what, what is it? Paul, a, a servant of Christ Jesus, uh, an apostle set apart for. I mean, you just you kind of read it quickly and you don't stop and realize, well, there's a lot that he's packing into that little piece. And by slowing down and breaking it down and studying it, um, I, I do believe both your mind and your heart will be enlightened. And so I really do challenge and encourage you to, to study it um, in a much similar fashion to the way that we are actually doing it here. The second thing that I want to challenge you to do in terms of, in terms of uh, reading the Bible is trying to understand uh, as, as best you can how the Bible fits together in a larger picture, more in a meta-narrative way. Um, sometimes when we get into the minutia, we fail to see exactly how all of these ideas fit together. And one of my favorite ways to study the Bible is just by reading the scriptures and not planning to have everything figured out. You're going to say, well, wait a second, Jim, didn't you just tell me that you want me to slow down and read it all? And I said, yeah, I did tell you that. That was one way of doing it. 
But another amazing way that I have learned to love the scriptures and fall in love with the scriptures is by reading them and reading them and reading them and reading them and trying to not catch every small little nuance but catch the big move of scripture. And, and one of the greatest resources for this, and it's not cheating, okay, um, is actually through the, 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 the YouVersion app. How many of you have that on your phone, right? Everybody in the world, I think. They've, they've got like 8 billion copies sold, so to speak. So I think everybody has it eight times on their phone. So everybody's got a copy of this. And do you, how many of you know that you can pull up the version that you want and you can push a button and it will read it to you? Do you know this? Do you use this? Use this. <laughs> uh, use it, use it, use it, use it. I mean, I think it's one of the best things that you can actually do is to have the word read to you. To have the word read to you. Because one of the things that it's really, really critical for you to remember is that, I mean, the, even the whole idea, I talked about the fact that, you know, we have the luxury of, of, of time now, but we also have the luxury of the text now. And in the past, they wouldn't have this. It wouldn't be open up your Bibles, Thessalonians. It would be actually, no, I got it in the mail today, a copy of this letter to us from Paul. I'm gonna read it to you. Are you ready? Here it is. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, actually. So as actually, it's Paul, Timothy, and Silas. So it's three people, and he writes this letter, and he is reading it to this audience and then after he's reading it, it, he kind of does the very end of it, and, you know, verses uh, 23, 24, 25 of 1 Thessalonians 5, and then the letter's over, and then they have to go live it. And so it's read, it's, it's meant, it's designed in many ways to be read. And I really want to encourage you, like in your Bible study, to not only be actively involved in breaking it down into the pieces of it, but actually allowing the Word of God to begin to, to, to affect you um, uh, very intentionally. If you, if you don't mind, I, I want to show you a verse, and it's not in the Timothy. I tried to look for a parallel, but I couldn't find it. But if you have your Bibles, I want you to, to look at a, a, a phrase that actually came up in another study that I was doing this week. Uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to I read something to you that, that, that I think you might go, oh, that's, uh, hopefully you'll find it as interesting as I did. Um, let me see if I can find exactly where it is. Yeah, I guess I'll start here in verse 13. In verse 13, the Apostle Paul, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Um, here's how the Apostle Paul uh, is trying to encourage the church in Thessalonica. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received it, he's talking about their faithfulness and he's really excited about their faithfulness. And so he says this, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, so not as just one other speech written by people, but as what, but as what it really is, the word of God. So I'm really glad that when we came and we spoke to you, you were able to discern in our speech the fact that what we were telling you was not just human thoughts, but it, what it really was, was the, the word of God. And then he goes on and he says this, the word of God, which is at work in you believers, which is at work in you believers. 
And so that's one of the reasons why I am just such a, a fan of different ways of studying the Bible, i.e. in-depth, looking at it, and then sometimes allowing the Word to just pour over me, is because it is the Word of God that is, that is the greatest tool that we can possibly have to have our lives transformed in the image of Jesus. I can give you a moving or a stirring illustration that may, you know, pique your interest or it may do something in the sense of memorable, but in the end, I do not believe it can transform. I've seen a lot of really good movies, right? Rocky, great movie, didn't change my life. I've seen a lot of great, I remember as a, as a young man watching the movie The Outsiders, um, and seeing that movie, and I, I, I literally remember being mesmerized by that movie and emotionally just drawn in, didn't change, still didn't change my life. Didn't change my life. So as valuable as illustrations or great stories really are, it's not the same thing as the Word of God. And, and the Word of God is what is at work in us as believers, and so this is why we study the Bible, and this is why we take so seriously the act of studying the Bible to the point where we're trying to integrate it into our lives. And, and, and before I go down to the second part, which is how, do, how should we specifically study letters, but before I leave that, let me, let me add one more thing. Um, as you've heard me and others share in the past, one of our deep concerns as a leadership here is our lack of um, intentionality as a church, um, which we definitely see at large in our country and in our city, but we see it in us as well. Um, this inability to even know how to even answer sometimes this question, am I a believer or is so-and-so a believer? And so this is going to be the one of the ways I'm gonna start talking about it. What, who is a believer? And what the Bible actually talks about more than just this one little place, a believer is someone in whom the word of God is at work in their life. That's what it is, right? Paul's not going, yeah, I can't tell which ones of you are followers and not. Paul's not going, yeah, I went, I went to church on Sunday and I took attendance and now I know. I mean, I don't know if you've heard, but we must be doing something right because attendance, attendance Sunday was off the chart. Oh yeah, it was Easter, right? And it was great. I'm so excited that so many people came. But let's not, just, let's not be confused about ourselves. Like, just because... The sign that you and I are believers, if you want like a very real sign, you want to know what it is? If you want to know, how do I know that like God is alive in me? I'll tell you how, there's just no doubt about it. When you see the word of God at work in you, the word, this word here was given to us by God through the spirit of God. We talk about the spirit of God living in us and working in us. And I think it is so important. Um, one of the ways in which Andrew and I should look at our children and, and, and really wonder about the, what is happening inside of them is when we see the work of God or the word of God at work in them. Does that not make sense? What a great way for us to, 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 to see this and not as, um, you know, not as some kind of a, a measuring stick in which we hit people with, but maybe as a measuring stick in which we can begin to see and then obviously celebrate. Paul begins at the end of, of this chapter. He talks about how much he glories. And this word is a kind of an interesting word. He glories. Uh, the word that's used in the, in, the, in the ESV is the word boast. Okay? He boasts. To boast, the Greek word is doxa, 
where we get the word doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So the doxology is actually from the Greek word doxa, and the Greek word doxa means glory. Well, where did you get the idea of boasting? Well, if I were to say to you, I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to glory in, and I tell you what I want to glory in. I want to glory in my victory. Literally, it's like I want to just bask in. I just want to kind of just revel in it. I want to just let the joy just overwhelm me. It's a boasting thing, right? I want to glory in what a great marriage I have. How many of you go, oh, is he boast? You see where boasting comes from? And so the Apostle Paul says, I so long to boast in you this this joy that I have on that day of Christ because we are celebrating, we are boasting, we are glorying in, we are finding great joy in the work that God is doing through us in his word. And that's why Bible study actually matters. It really gives us an opportunity in a session like this for us to glory in what Christ has done. I really think that's kind of what Tom and I do when we look at each other and smile. Whenever we say, is it not kind of what we're doing, Tom? Tom, this is what we're doing. <laughs> this is what we're doing. You scared me right now, but this is what we're doing. We're glorying in this wonderful, joyful thing that we share together in Christ Jesus. And that's a great reason to why, why I studied the Bible with other people. Number two, how should we study the letters of the Bible? How should we study the letters of the Bible? Now, the reason why this matters is because not, I, not all of the Bible books are letters. And so we have just come out of three specific letters, okay? First and second Timothy and then Titus. Now, how do we study them? And, I, and again, I just want to kind of underline this as we, as we leave here. Um, every Bible book is written in its own genre. And therefore, when you want to understand a Bible book, it's really, really important that you look at that Bible book and you say, okay, what are some of the rules when I want to interpret a book like that. So Revelation comes with its own expectation because it is its own genre or genres. It's, there's actually three in the book of Revelation, letter, apocalyptic, and prophetic. So there's three there. But in these books, the Paul's letters or letters from uh, Peter or Jude or uh, whoever, that there is a, a way in which that we need to go back and, and study it. And so um, remember that as wonderful as these books are uh, for us, that they weren't written first to us. And so one of the best things that you can do when you, ever, you're, you, you pick up a Bible book and you say, okay, I've got this incredible letter, the letter to the Romans or the letter to the Galatians, to go over the basic pieces that you do is you remember who wrote it, Paul wrote it, or if it's the letter of John, the letters of John, John wrote it. If it's the letter of Peter, two letters of Peter, Peter wrote it, and you begin to ask who is the author and you begin to understand who he is. Okay, author, know, know that. The second thing you need to know is who's the audience, okay? So Peter, it is the church in Babylon for, and that's kind of a metaphor. So he's writing to the church at Rome. John is writing to the church at Ephesus, his letters. Paul is writing, and he's got a whole bunch of them. So he's writing to the church at Rome. He's writing to the Galatian churches. He is writing um, to a particular person, named Philemon, he is actually writing to Timothy or to Titus, and so you begin to recognize that in these letters, not only do I have a person and I need to know about them, but we have locations and places and we need to be able to understand 
what they're like. And when you do that, you're literally setting the Bible book in its original context so that you can understand the book a lot better. That's our goal, right? The, more we, the better we can understand it, the better that we can then apply it to our lives. And then another piece that you need to remember is that since you've looked at the author and then you've looked at the audience, the, the third thing I always try to do is I ask, what is the occasion for all of this? What is the occasion? Um, the fancy word for this in commentaries is provenance. What is the provenance? What, is, what, what, what precipitated this? What caused Paul to write this? Because when you pick up the book of Galatians and you hear phrases like, who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? You pick that up and you go, wow, I wonder what they did to tick him off. And then you pick up other ones and he is just as, as sweet and as kind as the day is long. Some of them, Paul like begins to write in this almost standoffish, big, grandiose terms. And then when you begin to look back and you see what the occasion is, is that Paul is writing to a church so that he can outline his full understanding about who God is. Because as he is traveling to Spain, he wants to stop at this very important city so he can talk to them and he wants to introduce himself, let them know firsthand kind of who he is and what he believes that's the letter of Romans. And when you begin to understand that, you're like, oh, okay, that's why he's talking like this. That's why he is setting that up. And that is really, really important for us to see. Because if we're trying to answer questions that the Apostle Paul has not even thought of or has no interest in answering, that is when we are more susceptible to you and I just twisting the Bible to make it say what we want to say. Okay? Okay. Um, we, we, we really do like studying the Bible and one of us on staff right now, I won't say who it is because Diane Brown hates it when I use it as an as example. Um, but right now Diane is actually uh, taking some graduate classes at a school and one of her graduate professors actually said to her recently the statement and, and the statement's kind of an interesting statement. He said this to her and freaked her out. Okay, but here was the statement. Um, you know, we're not supposed to do everything that Paul says. Now, now, Diane is a, is a good old girl, right? She believes the Bible is the word of God. When, I, by the way, I do too. <laughs> but when she was telling me this statement, man, do you know what he said to me? He said to me that the Bible, you know, that we, or we should, that we shouldn't necessarily follow everything that, that the Apostle Paul says. And I said, well, I, I still don't know if, I, if, I'm, if I'm with him or not. Because actually, I kind of agree with that statement. Don't you? Don't you? Well, 1 Timothy, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you can prove me wrong. 1 Timothy chapter 5 says this, and I, I, it's, not, it's not all of the examples, but, but here's, here's one, of the, one of the examples. 1 Timothy chapter 5 puts it this way. Here's, here's what he says. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine. How many of you go, uh-huh, it's exactly what he says, it's exactly what I do. You know why I drink alcohol? Because the Bible says so. Right? Or how many of you go, well, wait a second. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't think we're supposed to follow. And do you have a reason why not to follow that? Because Paul was telling that to Timothy. Paul, that's why. And I, my name is not Timothy. Oh, okay. So if we follow that reasoning, right? Then Paul is telling Timothy to establish elders who have that conduct. He's not telling me to. Yes, he is. It's the, do you see the complexity of it? Which, which, by the way, 
I still believe that in the majority of cases, and it, it, this, it'll, it'll go, this will go outside, will it not, Ryan? Outside the scope of what I want to try to accomplish tonight. But it is very important for us to stop and to ask, like, why and where we get so wrapped up and intentional about how do we apply these particular ideas, and other times in which we say, yeah, we think that one's more cultural, and the two things that I just don't have the, the, uh, the uh, I don't even want to say luxury, two things I can't do um, for the purposes of integrity is I can't jettison them all like some people do and just say the entire book is, is far more mythical and it really says nothing to me. And I can't, I, the other thing I cannot do is I cannot just blindly kind of follow this book like somehow it doesn't have a cultural context. No, it does. It has a cultural context. And the way in which you and I can have, can have integrity when we read the word of God and have it change our minds and shape our behaviors is by recognizing author, audience, occasion as we begin to study it, begin to ask some deeper questions about where it makes the most sense and why the church has taken so seriously certain aspects of Paul's teachings and others where the church, it says, Paul, by the way, says this, greet one another with a holy kiss. I've got nothing from you tonight, just saying. Nothing, okay, <laughs> yet. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, we just say, well, but that's a cultural expression. Okay, well, but where is that cultural line? And the answer is, here are the two places it's not. Not everything is culture. Love one another. Forgive one another. Ah, that's cultural. Be kind to one another. Be patient with one another. Ah, that's more cultural. No, it's, how do you know, right? And this is why we come back and we get to study the word of God together and say, listen, yeah, we're gonna do this. We're not gonna make it everything. We certainly can't make it nothing. And so that is why it's so even critical that we actually do this together. So when you're studying a letter of the Bible, author, audience, occasion, Author, audience, occasion. Okay? Any questions about that? Probably not. Okay. Let's kind of uh, spend some few moments just kind of describing some of the key themes that we actually see in the pastoral epistles. And again, I've, I've already talked uh, a lot about these. The first one that I want to talk about that is just so critical and so valuable, um, one of the reasons why we decided to do this is the issue of leadership in the local church. Um, again, the context that, uh, you know, if, if I were to write a letter to the church in Stillwater or to the church at Sunnybrook, this would probably want to be, the, would be one of the big things. And, and not because I feel like there is a problem here at Sunnybrook, but I do believe that there is a problem in our culture. I believe we live in a culture where rebellion and anti-authority and I'm going to do this my way and I know as much as you, it just is so pervasive in the culture that I think it is absolutely critical that we take leadership seriously. And there's two sides to that. The first thing that you see, and you'll see this in Titus chapter one, and you'll see this in uh, 1 Timothy chapter three, when the apostle Paul begins to describe what are known as the qualifications for elders, one of the biggest things that you actually see is that leadership begins with a life that is devoted and committed to Jesus Christ. Like leadership is not a good old boys club. 
It's not a mutual admiration society. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not any of those things. Leadership, biblically speaking, finds at its root, one of the places I often go to is the statement that God makes about David when he chooses this one and they're trying to find a leader. Remember this? And they can't find the one and they're going, man, we brought you the biggest, we brought you the smartest, we brought you, you, know, we brought you all these things. What is it that you want? I mean, I don't get it. And what does God say? Man looks at all these outward appearances. Man looks at leadership and sees all of these outside things. But God looks at what? Looks at the heart. Like God looks at the heart. And that's a great reminder when it comes to biblical leadership. And so as we get into conversations and discussions about leadership, it's, it's, it's the, the Bible does not allow me, Jesus makes this statement, is that it, it, the, uh, the um, what is it called, the Gentiles, the Gentiles lord it over one another, i.e. they love to ask, who's the boss, and can I be the boss, and I want to be the boss. And Jesus said, but not so with you, for the greatest of you will be the least of you. And the one who serves all of you, that is who will lead you, right? That's kind of his mentality for leadership, is what? It is this sense of service. It is this sense of not arguing for my rights, but how can I serve? That's the biblical model. And Paul asks for that in the context of Ephesians and uh, the, in the city of Ephesus for Timothy's sake and the city of Crete for, for, uh, for Titus. So, it is important for a congregation not just to know who its leaders are, and leadership, I would argue, goes beyond just eldership, but it's not only important for you to know, but to even to know the character of, to know the character of our leaders. And then when there are concerns, when there are difficulties, when there are obstacles, the beauty of it is we all stand under the same rule, which is the word of God. So that's where you avoid a lot of the corruption and a lot of the difficulties that can exist in so many other organizations that have a different standard. Our standard is what? God's word. And by the way, we find even a sense of peace. One of the reasons why it is easy for me to submit to other leaders in the church is because I know that the leadership that I am submitting to is under the leadership and the authority of God himself. And I'm going to trust him first and foremost. And that's why it becomes so critical and so essential. Another thing that we actually see both in this book, but I want to steal a phrase um, that Paul uses uh, to the city of Ephesus in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 22, maybe 21. He makes this statement. um, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes into a, a, a conversation about husbands and wives. But he begins with this statement, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that is Paul's, uh, I believe, paradigm for how we even interact with one another. That submission becomes a natural part of the Christian life. One of the reasons why I think leadership is so critical today is because it is just not the way our culture works. And I'm always asking this question, not difference for difference sake, but difference because the Bible seems to offer a different approach to things. And when the world does it in in X, it's not like I want to try to find why, but it's actually good for me to realize the Bible most likely is going to offer me an alternative way of doing leadership. And leadership at the biblical level 
is like character and integrity, character and integrity, character and integrity. That's kind of what it looks at it. We look for more like efficiency, savvy, and the, and the Bible says, no, are they like Christ? And it's so critical to, to see that. The other thing that we actually see under the, under the leadership piece is that leaders are designed in many ways to protect the flock. Um, that to be a leader is to, to recognize the need to care for people. And, and, and Timothy seems to, First Timothy particularly, seems to really draw this out. You're going to care for people who all, don't always want to be cared for. Who don't always want to sit under the protection of your wings. And it's easy to care for people when they're going, will you please help me? That's easy. But those who are going, I don't need your help. I don't need your input. I don't, I don't need you to tell me how to live my life. And, and, and the Bible actually teaches in 1 Timothy, you need to lead those people well, as, as well. How do I lead them? And that's that famous Greek word that I fell in love with. You need to lead them with this incredible sense of patience like Christ endured. Um, we should also, as elders, like endure this um, uh, this, this inability to see, this inability to recognize for a very, 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 very long time. It's connected to the, to the Greek word that describes this long suffering. And to be a good leader in the church is, is to be long suffering, which usually isn't an attribute that a lot of people have, right? It's, it's a tough one. It's a really, really tough one. Um, I would even argue we can only do it by the, by the Holy Spirit. Um, the last thing I guess I want to say about leadership before I, before I jump to the next one is this is that another really critical way for us to look at, at leaders, um, and by the way, I love to look out and to, to see different people in a congregation and to realize um, that not only am I looking at past leadership, but I'm also looking at future leadership. Whether it's in Sunnybrook or somewhere else, I think it's good that we see it that way. Um, there, there is nothing wrong with ascribing to leadership. There is nothing wrong with that. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter three that those who want to be elders desire a noble task. And one of the biggest frustrations I have is I meet young people and I'm asking them this question of leadership and they're always, so many of them are either wanting it. Yes, I want it. I want to boss everybody around and that scares me or else they don't want it at all. Like I don't want it. Like I'm just so, I don't want to be held accountable. I don't want to have to put my life up as a model or as an example. I can't do that. And, and Paul uses as one of the best ways to know a good elder, and he extends it over to deacon, and even into deaconesses, is how they manage their family. That's kind of one of the major ways, and Paul kind of gives that as the presupposition. He actually says that. How do they manage their family? Because if they can't manage their family, how can they manage the family? If they, if they can't manage their family, how do they manage the family? And, and that is one of those, I mean, as a, as a dad with children, as a um, as, a, as, as somebody that even kind of thought about that from a child's perspective, looking at my father, who is in many ways a leader in the church, I began to realize, wow, like there really is a lot at stake in our relationships. A lot more at stake than any of us ever realize. I think we're just kind of living our own lives and doing our own thing, but there's a lot at stake. And the Apostle Paul says, leadership is critical. Character is the central issue in, in terms of submission to Christ. And one of those ways that you can know, and he talks so often about that family dynamic. The second major theme that you clearly see in this book, which is probably the strongest theme in the book, is the dangers of heresy. 
the dangers of heresy. Recently, in a podcast that we, we did, how many of you heard the Is God a Divine Child Abuser podcast? Any of you guys picked that up? Okay, a lot of you did. We answered that because there is, we're not, we're not trying, well, truly, I mean, we never want to be argumentative. But we do feel the need to address issues. And um, the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian elders, you know, the, how many of you have heard the phrase, like wolves in sheep's clothing? Okay. That was actually something that Paul says to the Ephesian elders from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. He describes this idea that there are some among you who are wolves in sheep's clothing who will rise up and begin to lead others away. And he's talking at a leadership level like this is what's going to happen. And be on guard is what he says. You need to be on guard. So I don't feel like I need to be on guard in an overly protective way. But how many of you, if I just let my kids read whatever they want or do whatever they want, you would look at me and go, like, that's not good parenting. Wouldn't you? No. No, you're going to have to let them grow up and they're going to have to make their own decisions. But the real truth is you need to help them along the way. And this is one of the primary things that, that we see here in this particular book is can, and, and I guess one of the questions I want to ask you is not only, I guess a couple of things I, 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 could, I could go off on this one. One of them is, is like, do you know where, here's a good question, do you know where to turn to be able to smell questionable doctrines or ideas? Like, do you know where to go? Or are you someone who is rather fascinated with new and improved ideas? Or, by the way, that's one kind of heresy, one of the heresies is, hey, can I show you something new? Because it's really, really shiny and it spins. <gasps> wow, isn't that fun? So that's one way to look at heresy. You know what the old one is? The old tried and true. The old way of doing it. Both of those are very dangerous. The two ways in which I've noticed that I can be most tempted is looking backward in an unbiblical and therefore critical way at past things that are done and not holding them up to God's word, not holding them up to God, right, God's righteous standard, but just blindly accepting them because everyone up until today has been doing the exact same thing. And I don't even know to question it. And the other one is, I, I do, I kind of like the shiny things. I kind of like the new things. When I hear about a new idea, I'm like, well, I, I kind of like new ideas. Uh, who doesn't like a good, good new idea? After all, it says it's the word new on it. It's got to be better. I, Andrea laughs because every infomercial that says new, I'm getting. I mean, literally, it's in. You put new on your menu, I'm trying it. You know, a new cheeseburger. Really? What's on it this time? Cheese. No way. I, I have to have one. So what the Apostle Paul does in this book is he, he, he really, if you go look back, think of Timothy. Be very careful of those people who want to go back and talk about myths and genealogies and all of these things from the past. Be careful of that. Don't allow that. And what Paul does to Timothy is he says, like, I want you to confront it and I want you to expose it. And then I want it to just kind of sit there exposed so that people will not be led away. Which forces me to deal with this um, Anti, it's so not, it's so not like an agreed upon idea in our culture. It's, it's so just reprehensible. Um, we have a little bit of this, like, we have to accept at least that every idea should be allowed on the table. We actually believe in a book that says the exact opposite. You do know that, right? 
The Bible doesn't teach that every idea is a good idea. The Bible doesn't teach that every idea should be on the table. No, the Bible says, um, one, of the, one of the texts that's used is in 1 Thessalonians. It says, avoid, when, when you, whenever there's some kind of prophecy or truth that someone says has been given from God, number one, you examine it to see if it's true. Avoid every evil prophecy. Cling to that which is good. That avoid every evil is evil prophecy or an evil teaching. You need to avoid those things. And so we live in a culture where it's like, how dare you? Um, uh, why am I having a hard time remembering the word? What is it? Censor. That's right. We're anti-censorship people. How dare you censor my ideas? How dare you challenge my ideas? How dare you somehow restrict my ideas? And the answer is, oh, because like, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's what we do. We actually do. We censor them. We restrict them. We evaluate them. Um, we, we expel many of them because they're not true. They're lies. And we, we expel lies and falsehoods. And that's why there is a, a, a tremendous need for us to be aware. Where do you go? That's a great question. Where do you go to find out her, heresy? And do you know where to go? Are you, is your heresy meter, is it broken? Or are you able to discern it? Have you been able to surround yourself with, with wise people who can walk you through some of the questions that you might have? And, and, and let me tell you this. Um, you might think, yeah, I'll just go talk to Jim or I'll go talk to Paul or I'll talk to Ryan or Diane or whatever. And by the way, not a bad idea, but you do know I still do that too. <laughs> like I am, I am not in that, whatever word you want to use, I am so not near the end of this. Like there are still people in my life that I reach back into my past um, men and women that are so wise and so learned and so experienced, I still call them up and say, I need your help with this idea. I really do. I still need your help. So never stop being a student, okay? Beware of old truths and beware of new ones. Submit everything to the word of God. Number three I see on my list, I think. Responsibility of believers for each other. I'll do this one a little quicker. Um, what I, one thing I love about this particular book is it loves to say this. Hey, for those of you who are older women, now I know that offends you, but you really shouldn't be. It's an honorable thing, by the way, biblically and in my mind. It's an honorable thing. Those of you who are older women should recognize your responsibility to younger women. Okay? You just need to recognize your responsibility to them because they don't know what they're doing and they need your help and they need your guidance and they need your input. And I know you're thinking little old me and the answer is yes, little old you. And you need to invest in them and share with them and love them and guide them in terms of what it looks like. And this, these letters give that very strong admonition and the same thing, older men to younger men. We have to take that kind of response, and that's kind of how this book is written. There is a, an intergenerational responsibility that is actually needed. And it's, it's one of the things, I don't know if I can, I'll, I'll speak for just Jim the congregant, okay? Not the elder, not the pastor, just Jim. Um, I've often wondered where we do a disservice to the church when we walk into the building and then everybody goes in a different direction, all the ages in different directions. I think about this all the time. Is that the best way to do it? And one of the things that we're always working on is how can we bring them together, right, Natalie? Like, how can we bring these pieces together? 
How can we have kids learning alongside? How can we help parents disciple their kids? How can we, now I get the idea. I get that your kids right now, for some of you are thinking about your kids who are younger, they would be screaming right now if they had to listen to Jim teach. Like they, it would drive them crazy. I get that. So I get that there needs to be a time, but they're also, then we need to figure out another way to be intergenerational. I mean, that's what the Bible teaches. And I think the Bible knows what it's doing. And therefore, we need to take that very intentionally. And um, I don't know how many of you are like Andrea and I, but like our, my children's grandparents are 1,758 miles away from us. And so they need grandparents. And so those things matter. And when you think about how that works down, this is why we're the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul talks about this like, like it's the most normal thing. I don't know if it is. I think Paul may have struggled with the exact same thing. There are probably people way back there going, oh, um, I don't know if I can do this. I'm just little old me. Well, listen, Grandma, love you to death. That's why we need you to come upon these young ladies and help them. Older men, younger men, help them. Younger men, respect older men. Like admit, you're, you're, you don't have it all figured out. You're 28. You have no idea what you don't know. You need to seek wise counsel. Don't miss that opportunity. That's what the Bible teaches. These, great, these are book, great books for that. And then lastly, the, one, of the, one of the other major sections obviously becomes the ethics of all believers. That This book has a very strong ethical charge all the way through it. It talks about what we need to do with our money. Um, and it tells us to not cling to the hopelessness of wealth, but actually to spend our time investing in things like good, uh, using our wealth in good works. Uh, it even says this about like older women who are widows. Like if they're not about, this is one of the most difficult texts I've ever studied. If these older widows aren't about doing good works for the body of Christ, don't help them financially. That's what he says. And in the Greek, it means if they're old and they're not doing good works, don't help them financially. The Greek's not going to help you. And so it's really interesting how there really is this implied intentionality that we really should be about doing good. And we are, we, I believe we're living in a time where somehow that's like questioned. Like somehow there's something, bro no, 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 we're saved by faith, man. Totally agree. I'm never going to argue with that. You're, you're right. We're saved by faith. For what? Continue the verse. To do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. It's the, it's the rest of what Paul is saying. And that's what this particular book is getting at. Like There is a transformation that is happening in us that does lead us to become gooder people. Okay? We need to be more and more gooder. Gooder and gooder and gooder every day. And that ethics piece, and this is why I, I think it's, I'm gonna say this one last time because I, I don't really get to say this all the way through the summer, so I love saying this, is that what we believe will absolutely shape our behavior. Our belief system shapes our behavior. We wanna try to pretend it doesn't, but it really does. And that's why what we think will affect what we do. And my favorite way of saying it is our orthodoxy, okay? Orthodoxy, right thinking, shapes our what? 
Orthopraxy. Right practice. And th- this book is, is, a, is masterful at that. If you want to go back and look at it, the Apostle Paul says, yeah, those things are, are inseparably linked together. Inseparably linked. And I, one, one of the things that, you, for those of you that were here on Sunday, you kind of heard me talk about it a little bit. I personally am being led by the Spirit of God um, to be more vocal about all of what is happening in me, and particularly, not trying to hide away from my struggles, or I'll, I'll share them with you, you want to talk, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll confess my sins to you as a brother or sister in Christ, and I'll walk through some of the struggles that I'm going through without any hesitation. Um, I don't think we talk about our victories in Christ enough with each other. I think we're so afraid of bragging, or we're so afraid of something, that in the end, it just, it just completely goes unsaid. And that is so contrary to, to, to biblical teaching. Like Paul says over and over and over again, like encourage one another with these words that you should do good works. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, I want to encourage you to love each other more and more. I know you're already doing this, but I want to encourage you to do it more and more. And especially as the day is approaching, meaning the day that Christ, of Christ's return. That he who began a good work in you will see it on to completion. Encourage one another with these words. I mean, there's so many times this happens. And um, I, I never want us to be a church where somehow someone who is struggling feels like they can't come to any of us because they think that I only have victory. I don't only have victory. But how I deal with even my struggle or what you might want to call defeat, I call temporary defeat, right? My struggles. The Bible actually teaches me that how I deal with those is I don't run and hide, but I confess my sin. And when I confess my sin one to another, he is faithful and just. When I confess it to him, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of all unrighteousness. Which, by the way, then puts me again in the victory seat. So my wife and I get into an argument, and she says, wrongly, you always think you're right. You always think you're right. And I say to her, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I used to argue and say, no, I don't. But no, I'm going to admit it. Yes, I kind of do. But here's the other thing that I've loved, is that when I begin to realize I'm wrong, I so love being right, I admit I'm wrong so that I'm right again. I just, I, honestly, it is not, people go, it must be so hard for you to admit you're wrong. No, it's not at all, actually. It's really easy for me to admit I'm wrong. Because when I'm clearly wrong, to admit I'm wrong makes me what? Right. That whole mentality, okay? Now, I'm broken when I'm kidding around about it. But is that not the Christian life? Is that when I'm wrong, what do I, I confess it, I'm wrong. Like I was wrong. No if ends, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to embrace my sin. I'm not going to embrace my brokenness. I'm not going to hide from it. I'm going to confess it to you. And then when we confess it, what does it make us? Not, not, well, I like, let's use, keep using the word right. It makes us right again. It makes us right in him again. It makes us righteous. Okay? Because of the work that Christ is doing in us. And that's what this book is about. It's not about attaining some kind of moral perfectionism where somehow we never, ever, 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 ever go anything through, through anything again. No, that's not what he's describing. But a life that is lived in complete subjection to God and to the word of God that we just continue to see that kind of transformation. And these books have hopefully been helpful for you. They've been incredibly helpful for me. Well, I've saved almost a minute for questions so, any questions that you have for me? Jim, I'm 
Go. How can people who are believers read the Bible and not know that they're going to heaven? Yeah. How can people who are believers read the Bible and not know they're going to heaven? Um, I would say that's a kind of more of a universal question that this book kind of maybe addresses a little bit. My, what, what I think happens um, on that issue, Tom, is that most, and, uh, you know, this might be a great way for us to end. So let me use this as our final question because it's a good way to, for us to head, head towards the summer. So I'll, I'll repeat the question. Why do people who are believers in Jesus Christ, why do they have such a hard time believing that or doubt or why do they doubt that? I think it ultimately goes back to the fact that if, we real, if, if many of us who are struggling with that what, we, what you are really doubting is that you have done enough or that you're good enough to either earn God's love or to earn God's forgiveness. No matter what I say, I can talk about grace till I'm blue in the faith. I can talk about faith until I'm blue in the faith. I can talk about the work of Christ until I'm blue in the face. It seems like most of us believe, we came up with this analogy a little while back. I think that most people believe that in the end, well, I know we all need a little bit of Jesus. We've all failed, right? And so, you know, my, my buddy Trevor over there, um, he, is like, he, he is like 51% good. Now, he, you need 100% to get to Jesus. You need 100% to get to God. And so he needs 49% Jesus to make it work, okay? Now, Tom, he's awesome. So we all need 100%. Nobody is 100%, but Tom's like a 92 Okay? Tom only needs 8% Jesus. And I think a lot of people believe this. Because you know how I know? Here's what they say. You know, my friend, they're a really good person. They really are. They're amazing. They're awesome. They are so good. Kind of wish they'd come to church. I don't know if they really need it. Because they are so awesome and they are so good. Like, literally, like without God, they're like 98% perfect. And they, I, I, I mean, so we just need to get them to 2%. You know, but he's not, he's not, never, not that's kind of how we think. That, that is so, this is so wrong. You know what we are, every single one of us? Zero percent. Because <laughs> nothing we do earns it at all. Now hear me, so the good works we do don't earn anything. So when we begin to hear that, I don't know how many of us really believe it. I think I went through a lot of my life, Tom, thinking I, my job was to do my best, God would cover the difference. Kind of like my dad when I would go to the store and, well, you pay for as much of the bike as you can, son, and then I'll help you with the extra. But when I stand before God, I got jack boo squat. That's a, that's a Greek term for nothing. <laughs> I got jack boo squat with God. And God goes, but I have it all. And I think that is why people really do struggle. They really, really do struggle with that. They say, man, I'm, and, and this is the other problem, is they've been told that since we're saved by faith, there, there is a disconnect because one of the reasons how I know the Holy Spirit is working in me is because he's working in me and I'm doing good works for him. <laughs> but when we tell people, oh, it doesn't matter what you do, now we've separated them from one of those signs proving that they have it in them. I, I really think it goes back over and over and over again to remind them first and foremost how badly they need Jesus and how much he has actually done for them. The greatest heresy is that, is that you do as much as you can and God will fill in the gap. That is a lie from the pit of hell. 
we all need 100% of Jesus. Amen? If not, we need to talk. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this book and for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for this time together and I pray that God, you would not let it stay here, that you would not let it stay um, on pages or even in the pages of our Bibles, uh, but that God, those truths would begin to mold and shape or continue to mold and shape every aspect of us, our mind, our heart, our will. Uh, that God transformation would take place, that we would see it, that others would see it, that you would receive glory, and that God, it really would be our greatest joy. Um, so Father, help us to experience what we have in Christ, find joy in what we have in Christ, and live there. It's in his name we humbly pray. Amen.